and welcome to the latest episode of the Intelligent Transport Podcast, coming to you directly from the Transport Innovation Summit 2023. My name is Halima Huck, I'm the Editorial Assistant of Intelligent Transport, and today I'll be passing it over to Bus Users UK's Claire Walters and Jenny Martin. Together, they will delve into the intricate aspects of technology's role in passenger transport with a particular focus on passenger accessibility. So without further delay, let's hand the microphone over to you, Claire. Thank you, Halima. Yes, it's Claire Walters here. I'm the Chief Exec of Bus Users UK, and I'm also the Disability and Access Ambassador designated by the Cabinet Office for Bus and Coach Transport. So I've got a double whammy interest in accessibility. But actually, our chair, Jenny Martin, who's with us today, has a very long-standing skill and interest in all aspects of technology. So, Jenny, we've obviously both seen quite a lot of of changes in technology in our many, many years in the transport sector. So what do you think were the most impactful and why? Thank you, Claire, and and thank you, Halima, for inviting us. It's great to be here. Uh, Always love this particular event highlight on my my calendar. Uh, I mean, I like Claire. I I mean, this is a a non-visual podcast, so you can't see our ages, but we're not spring chickens. (laughs) And we both remember when there... There was no digital in transport where any any data, because it's still data even though it's on paper, any data you needed, uh, whether as an operator or as a, a passenger or even as a, a government policymaker, uh, was on paper. And uh, just been laughing with some other people about the, the old British Rail timetable and, and you know, great big books appearing twice a year. I wouldn't necessarily pick out any one thing. I think the, the gradual evolution of digital tools appearing and, in, in my opinion, making life easier, certainly for 100% of the operators and the policymakers and for a large proportion of the transport users, has been very gradual. You know, I do, if I can just pick one example, uh, I do remember many years of struggling with paper tickets and queuing up at ticket offices and knowing I was going to be late for work because I should have renewed on the Sunday, but now I'm renewing on a Monday morning together with everyone else. It's a nightmare. To have all that taken out of your life, all that hassle, I think has been a great thing. And one particular example, I actually nominated Transport for London for an award when they brought in as a a spin-off of the iBus project, which was all about making the running of the buses more effective and easier in London. As a spin-off, they produced the service whereby you could, by text message, get the arrival time of your next bus, because for the first time they were collecting um, real-time information data in a way that could be easily transmitted like that. And I nominated them for a prize for that, and my nomination said for a service which genuinely values the time of working class people because most of the people who were no longer having to stand for 15 minutes at the bus stop were low-income Londoners and hey someone had actually seen them and provided a service that was specifically designed to make their lives better. Thanks Jenny it's interesting isn't it when you really cast your mind back how much things have actually changed because we take an awful lot of the tech on buses and bus stops and all the rest of it for granted when it works and obviously when it doesn't work you dance around getting really uppity and anxious and annoyed about it all but actually I think one of the things that I remember from rail travel particularly was exactly that ticket issue where the terror of losing your annual season ticket made you treat it like some kind of gold bar 
and you just that was the one thing you needed because in those days I didn't have mobile phones either. So it's the one thing you needed to get out of the house was your annual season ticket. Because if you did lose it, they would replace it for a fee once. If you're daft enough to lose it twice, then that was on you, and that was an awful lot of money down the drain. In terms of buses, I think most people would have noticed the difference, certainly with the real-time information digital signs. But obviously they've had their issues as well because they keep changing the provider for that. And there was this whole phenomenon called ghost buses where sometimes the technology on the bus, the transponder, wouldn't necessarily be working or be switched on or do something. So these signs would actually default, and still do in some parts of the country, to timetable information. So it would count down to when the next bus was due. And when it got to the point that it was due and it didn't arrive, it just disappeared off the board, leaving you to wonder whether you just had a stroke while you were at the bus stop and completely missed it. And it was worse than having no information at all. And that was quite an interesting lesson, which is still being learned that if you can't give people accurate information, don't give them any. Because if if you're being led down the garden path, you will never trust it again if you go there. Especially, I mean, it's all right if you live in London or Nottingham somewhere where you've got bus service every few minutes. But if you're somewhere where you only get a bus service once a week (laughs) or twice a day, then obviously if you go and it doesn't arrive, you don't know what to do. I mean, I think that brings up the whole business of accessibility generally and what tools people have but uh, what sort of changes have you seen Jenny in attitudes within the industry particularly about accessibility and the role of the industry in meeting those needs what what's your impression been? Uh, yeah thank you Claire again certainly seen some uh, pretty major changes again as uh, it's obvious to anyone who knows my age that uh, no, and again bus well, any form of public transport, including bus, is at the end of the day just one corner of civic society as a whole. And same as over the last 40 years, I think society as a whole has become far more accepting of the fact that people with different accessibility needs do need to be enabled to travel around on the network, same as they need to access all sorts of other things, things that that we aren't responsible for in our sector. I, I would single out legislation. My feeling is, and my my ill-informed reckon, if I'm allowed to have one, is that without the legislation that we've had, which I I do fully agree that some lobby groups would say hasn't gone anywhere near far enough and should go further, but we have had a lot of legislation in this area over the last 40 years, and I think that is what has driven the improvement we've seen in public transport, because those, the voices of the people who, who need those needs serviced, as a rule, aren't represented in the workforce or certainly not at board level of the companies and organisations that need to provide it. And without this legislation, I don't think we'd be anywhere near as far forward as we are, uh, which, in my opinion, is a lesson we need to learn for the future, that the, those types of changes, improved accessibility, better mobility for people who have various particular needs... That needs to come from government level. It's no good sitting back waiting for commercial operators to provide it. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I think there are some operators who've taken up cudgels on this issue, have realised the enormous value to their business of the the Purple Pound, as it's called, the Disability 
spending power and realise that they're just cutting out these millions and millions and millions of potential pounds spent on transport from their businesses, uh, which makes no sense when a lot of bus operators are struggling for viability. But yes, definitely, I think the Equality Act and Disability Discrimination Act, that really set the ball rolling on a lot of these things. And then there are really exemplary operators who I think have shamed the others into activity. I mean, Brighton and Hove is the one most regularly quoted by people for their innovative approach to all sorts of things. They've actually introduced all sorts of technology. They've introduced design involvement. They've introduced the Helping Hand Scheme, which allows people to tell the driver discreetly without having to bark it all over the bus what their particular disability is, what kind of things they need. And the other one they brought in was the taxi guarantee scheme. So if a wheelchair user flagged a bus stand, but there wasn't a space because there was already a wheelchair in the space, they guarantee a taxi will come and take them and they will organise that. The driver will just let the office know. And that's a scheme that's been taken up by quite a few um, bus operators. And now you can see it in the enhanced partnership schemes and bus service improvement boards. That's also been considered. But there's others like Blackpool that do a phenomenal job, particularly in terms of mental health, and Lothian in Scotland. I mean, it's not just one anymore. So I think there's quite a few operators that are taking it on themselves. And the thing that's still missing a lot of the time is them talking to those people with those voices even within their own companies sometimes. They're not necessarily having the conversations that they need to, both in terms of planning or design or anything else, really. But they could save a lot of money on various ideas that really haven't worked. Um, you know, the 100-seater buses in Edinburgh were a definite example of looking at the marketing rather than the user. But I think there's certainly been a lot of improvement what kind of tech changes have happened, do you think, that might be making a difference to these markets? Yeah, that, that's a great question and I think a very interesting one. And again, it's nice to have a longer perspective. I remember attending a seminar specifically around using tech to support disabled travellers and uh, in a very good discussion. This is uh, in Manchester maybe 10, 15 years ago now. And... Uh, the, uh, this blind chap who was uh, so proud of his, uh, the, the navigation app he had offered to show me at Manchester Piccadilly Station because that's where we were departing from after the meeting and he would have walked onto a live bit of track if I hadn't stopped him. That was 15 years ago. From what I've seen from other apps, I bet it's a lot more accurate now. But uh, yeah, certainly in those days, these things had their... Uh, limitations, but I think this is not just a warning story about oh, you know, beware of tech. Uh, it's all it is also positive because this chap was so enthusiastic about his navigation app. It clearly made him feel much more in control of his own life, much more able to get about and do things that the rest of us take for granted. That I think these, you know, a lot of this supportive technology. We can't overestimate what a difference they made to people. But and it, it's not a particular like tragedy or disaster that 
technology designed to help disabled people sometimes doesn't work quite 100%. That's true for all of us. All the tech we use lets us down some of the time. So it's definitely not a reason not to do it. And as I say, these days, I think in indoor navigation, which is a fascinating topic all in its own right, because obviously uh, satellite-based positioning doesn't work that well when you're under several layers of concrete. But some really good work being done there, and a lot of it is aimed at being able to help people navigate around really complex environments like large railway stations, deep underground stations, those sorts of things. Yeah, thanks. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because an awful lot of the technology is being developed by people who've seen a problem and then trying to address it with technology. And that generally comes up with lots of ideas, which sometimes then cause other problems for different people. I mean, obviously, we've got audio announcements on buses, most places now and since the passing of the accessible information regulations that will become more and more common but actually quite a lot of people with other conditions find that quite disruptive for them so they get upset but they then have to try and wear headphones or something to drown out the noise that causes them anxiety for instance and likewise we had a conversation earlier about uh, being able to take assistance animals onto buses, trains, whatever, and how that can sometimes cause other people's allergies or fears to kick off. And that this balancing act between different kinds of needs is a really tricky one, and no developer, no app developer, no bus operator is ever going to meet them all. But I think the important thing now is that people are actually trying. So they're much more likely to have their drivers and staff go through dementia-friendly training, for instance, so that they'll understand and not just get embarrassed and squirm if somebody doesn't appear to be responding to them as they might expect. A lot of the bus designers have started to realise that there's money to be had out of you know investing in designs which are dementia-friendly flooring, for instance, which can also help people with autism. I don't suppose those of us who've never come across that before would even think about the fact that a very dark floor on the bus might feel like a, a, an ending void and terrifying to some people with different conditions. But it's important, I think, to do much more of what doesn't really happen, which is what they call co-production. So everybody working with people with different needs and people who are experts in this field, but not experts in design, to try and get some influence over it before they spend too much money in producing something that ain't going to work for a significant lump of the population. I think we have to talk about the downside of tech. It's important, I think, to realise that not everybody has access to all of these things. Is this, is this something that's hit you? Uh, yes, I, I think we're engaged in, in providing services to, really, the, the general population. Very few people have no need to travel ever. I think it's a really important consideration. I mean, my view is that it's an ever-evolving field, obviously, as we've said. We've gone from nobody being required to have any digital skills or owning any digital tools at all and still being able to travel around just as everyone else to the situation we're in now where I think, I mean, particularly with these, the, the bus users' challenges that uh, we on the board were set during this year to, to travel in an analogue fashion and only use cash. That really highlights that actually the people who are not digitally connected now in, I think, 
we evidence for these challenges, they get a worse deal. Their, their travel is more complex, it requires more effort on their part, and there are certain situations, and I would particularly say when this travel is when you've started your trip and then disruption hits you. If you don't have access to digital tools, then you are, well, like we all used to be, you are completely powerless. You're just sitting there. There's nothing you can do. The bus driver is driving the bus, possibly at that point in very stressful conditions. He hasn't got time to advise you about how you can get off at the next stop and take the train instead or whatever. He or she has a full-time job keeping the bus going. My view is that the correct attitude to digital exclusion has been different and will continue to be different as we go along what I see as an evolution curve. And I think we have now arrived at the point where the people who genuinely cannot but be digitally excluded because they do not have the capacity to become digitally included, they will always be with us and they will always need support and transport operators will always need to provide for them as they can take mobile. But I think we're now at the point where there's actually quite a large chunk of people currently digitally excluded where we should take proactive action, spend effort and spend money to help them become included with things like free training, free devices, free support, a bit like travel training for people with uh, learning disabilities, which have been, we know works really, really well. That sort of thinking, instead of leaving them excluded, and my view is based on the fact that society is now in that situation. If you are not digitally savvy and capable now as a citizen, your life is really quite hard already. Things like getting your child into schools, things like applying for your pension, things like applying for benefits, all really hard if you're digitally excluded. So if we in the transport sector in a way, sort of aid and abet people to remain digitally excluded when they really don't have to, we are actually doing them a large disservice. I think we're also doing the industry a disservice because it's leaving people behind who don't need to be left behind with a bit of invention, a bit of creativity. And there's an awful lot of that about in the transport industry and in the design industry that goes around that industry. So I think there ought to be a lot more encouragement. And yes, I do mean a certain amount of government money going into design challenges and that kind of thing but it needs to be done otherwise society doesn't work as Jenny's saying it's not just that the bus doesn't work nothing works if you can't live your life and you can't use technology I mean even if you were physically able to there's quite a lot of people who are excluded from having cashless options bank accounts contactless bank cards that kind of thing not everybody has those not every other country has those. So when they come to, say, London, which is cashless, and they try to get on the bus, they generally don't know. You can't use cash on the bus. So they're waving £10 notes at a driver who can't do anything about it. And then you have all these other problems with a lot of the card schemes, with a lot of the Oyster card. I mean, I know that's kind of almost outdated now because they're getting rid of it. Because you can only generally buy one ticket at a time. Some digital schemes can do more than that, but quite often it's all based on a single person with a single app or a single phone and a single card travelling on a single journey by one mode. And it just that's not how real people live life. So we do need to get way beyond this. And I agree, I think society needs to bear some of the costs of making sure people are digitally included. I know the library service did a lot of work with older housebound people. Unfortunately, libraries seem to be 
disappearing at a rate of knots now as well. But I think there are unintended and generally disagreeable consequences for a lot of the decisions being made by people who don't understand the life that is being led by people who don't have access to all this stuff. Because if you ask, you know, an employed, reasonably well-placed 25-year-old, the idea that people are going around without a mobile phone, without a contact, without a cashless option, would horrify them because their life is entirely digital. But they're the ones making the decision. They're the ones doing the admin for these schemes. So it doesn't cross their mind that there are people who don't have hands, so they can't do this, or they don't have this or that. And that's part of the problem, I think, is that there needs to be some kind of assessment involved in every new decision when you're moving away from something that works for a lot of people, even if it feels clunky, not very pretty, not very exciting, into something a lot more whiz-bang. Who does it leave behind and can we bring them with us? I think, obviously, disabled people are the clear losers. Even though an awful lot of tech is designed by and for disabled people, I mean, screen readers, I don't know if you've ever listened to a visually impaired person listening to a screen reader, but it's terrifyingly swift. I mean, I can't follow it, but it's amazing that the skills they have that are used by these apps. And that's something that they could teach us when that's not our disability, because ours is something else or we don't have one. And I think it's daft to leave them out of the whole planning process in the way that we tend to do, because we only ask them at the end, look at our new scheme. What does everybody think of it? Oh, we're introducing it in three months and there's these huge holes in it. That's not the time to be asking those questions. You need to do it much, much earlier on. Jenny, what other things do you think are difficult in terms of tech in transport? What things come to mind with you? Yeah, I think something which we don't really, as a user representative group, we don't talk about it because it doesn't feel intuitively as if it concerns us. But actually, uh, a great risk to users, and therefore maybe we should concern ourselves, is the whole piece around data integrity, data security, who's, who's got the data of users, how are they storing it, what are they doing with it, uh, are they selling it to anyone, all those sorts of things. That has, uh, if we call it cybersecurity as shorthand, it's been on the radar for quite a while. I mean, uh, unfortunately, it, sh- it should have been that the moment uh, cyber came into being, so should cybersecurity have come into being. That's what we should have done. But hey, you know, it's, we're 20 years on and <laughs> it didn't work that way. But uh, what we have now is it's a specialism. It's something that if you are a large enough organization handling data, you have specialists who sit in there and hopefully give you the help you need. If you're a smaller organisation, you probably have nobody or you've got people watching YouTube videos Mm. and trying to work out what to do. And from the the user's point of view, obviously, if you, for instance, you're a regular public transport user, there's a terrifying amount of things known about you Mm. by whichever operator you use, including things which could, if they fell into the wrong hands, not be great. I mean, if you're contesting a... Rather, your insurance company is contesting your claim and you're saying, no, no, I was always fit and healthy until this happened. Mm. And the insurance company gets hold of the data showing you getting off at the bus stop by the doctor's surgery five times a week, then mm. <laughs> you'd, you'd be in trouble. And uh, 
that, I mean, to me, if I pick one tech problem that isn't just on the horizon, it's in the here and now, we should be far more proactive. It should be one of these skills that everybody should have. You know, in, in when, as a working person, there are things that we're all supposed to know, like basic word processing we're supposed to know and we're supposed to know basic health and safety. Don't leave your handbag in the middle of the gangway, that sort of thing. I think basic cybersecurity and, and sort of data hygiene, uh, not storing data longer than you should and, and those sorts of things, needs to become mainstream now. And unfortunately, I don't see many signs of that, which could possibly to do with the fact that when something has been the province of a small number of extremely qualified experts for a long time, it's quite hard to socialise it as something that actually everybody needs to do. Oh. No, that's interesting because a lot of us are terrified of anything that sounds too techy as well it all sounds god that's so boring oh no that's not me I can't do that a bit like girls and maths when you're young uh, where they teach you that girls are not supposed to be good at maths so even if you are you're just reviled for it and I think this is another societal pressure issue that only certain people can be good at data security and clearly it is an important thing, we should all be trying to safeguard our personal information because all hell breaks loose when some public authority gets hacked and we all get really upset about it, understandably. So I agree. I think that's something that ought to be much higher on the agenda. One of the things that's um, been in my head for a while is this whole business of the speed of change in design and the ability of transport providers to keep up with those changes. I mean, obviously for us, one of the things we hear about quite a lot is wheelchair users trying to get on a bus or a coach and finding that there's some kind of obstacle to that because when the bus's design was agreed, it was at the top spec for accessibility at the time. But in the meantime, a lot of changes have taken place. So wheelchairs can be wider and have longer foot rests and much less maneuverability in some cases. So they can't actually access a bus, even though the bus is legally wheelchair accessible. It's not accessible for that wheelchair. But with a bus having a life of at least 15 years, in most cases, it's not clear how they can react to that quite often. I mean, I think there are expectations that buses can magically transform into open spaces and so that everybody can sit wherever they want. But again, if that bus was involved in an accident, people were flying all over the place because they were in a big open space and there were injuries, then that would be the bus manufacturers or the coach manufacturers' fault, particularly the coach manufacturers because obviously they're going faster, carrying more people often, um, depending on what kind of buses you're talking about. And they are going down motorbikes in a way that your average bus wouldn't be doing 70. So I think that's difficult for people to get any understanding from the public that actually they can't just change everything overnight. I remember back in the day, we were talking about the cost of the latest snazzy footballer's car. And it was cheaper than a double-decker bus. And that's the value of those two things is not conflated normally. I think the other thing that we have not really taken into account is there's no pace of change in local infrastructure. So pavements are often inaccessible because people have to get to a bus stop. They don't magically teleport to a bus stop. Wouldn't that be nice? Although if we could teleport, I suppose we wouldn't need buses and trains at all. But 
pavements not looked after very well. You end up in competition with other road users, pavement users. People want to park their cars on the pavement, all this kind of stuff. And the local authorities don't necessarily prioritise people walking to a bus stop. That's not high on their agenda of voters they need to cater for. And the bus stops themselves are not always fit for purpose. But I'm not sure that technology has an answer for those kinds of things, other than maybe reporting them. Does that make any kind of sense, do you think, to have a reporting tool for cracked-up pavements and cars on there? Yeah, uh, absolutely. That would be that would be my first answer in you know, how can technology help with, with those particular issues. And it is as a way of easily and simply with a photo, if your phone is thus equipped, and it probably is, uh, of what the issues are. Because in my, one of my two local bus stops, you can see that the local authority situated it well past the junction, and you understand why that is. And uh, even though we're a massive terrorist estate, it isn't actually outside anybody's front door, as it were. Uh, which is also clever because that people don't really like having a bus stop right outside their front garden. So they've avoided that with this one. But it is next to a very large, very healthy London plane tree. So unfortunately, it has the consistency of a lunar landscape <laughs> round about there. And the drivers are prone to also opening the doors right on the very healthy plane tree, which uh, for those of us who are agile, it's a, it's a nice way to get agile at the end of your working day. Uh, if you're in a wheelchair or you have a pushchair with you or large luggage, uh, absolutely not ideal. So obviously the, nobody would want the tree to be cut down, but the lunar landscape aspect of the pavement is a really good example of something you, you could... It's not just that you could report it easily and simply. Aggregating the data for all the different reports from all over the borough would be really simple if it came in in that way. So the local authority could quite easily assemble a dashboard of which particular bus stop seems to irritate people the most and therefore probably be most need our efforts. And I don't think this, this is not pie in the sky. If you look at the, the changes to enforcement and road safety brought on by the, the whole dash cam thing, that, and that started out with certainly the police forces and local authorities saying, oh, no, no, we don't want that. That's just a knee-jerk, though. Mm. We, we didn't provide that equipment, so we don't want the data from it. That's completely changed now. There are particular channels for sending in your footage of badly behaved road users. And it's become, quite, I think, probably quite an important part of how we manage our roads. And no reason why we shouldn't do the same with bus stops. I think I agree with that. But I wonder whether, because confidence is a big part of using the public transport network. And I think one of the biggest things that needs to happen is that people need confidence that something will be done if they go to the effort of reporting it. In the same way that if people report a complaint to a bus company and it doesn't do anything about it, that's why bus users has its secondary complaint procedure to allow a bit more digging and a bit more prodding of the bus operator to ensure that their needs are at least heard and hopefully apologise for. So I think something of that nature would be good, but it does have to go with some enforcement. Uh, because if it's not enforced, people won't use it, because they think, nobody will do anything anyway. What's the point of me doing that? So I think reporting issues are great as long as it doesn't fall into a black hole afterwards. And that, I think, is often a problem, because the joined-up thinking that we all want across transport needs to extend to making sure that the technology is used 
but that actual humans do something about it once they've used it. So should we just think about if we could change one thing about transport technology at this stage, what would it be? Magic wand time. So I, I would go back to something I said previously, and I wouldn't change anything about the technology. It's evolving, and it's, in my opinion, evolving in, in good directions. I would change the fact that, at the moment, we regard being digitally capable and connected as an individual responsibility. I would want to move that on and put it where education and healthcare and the justice system and all those other things, where they sit now, it should be a public responsibility because we should be bringing as many people with us as we possibly can. I think that's a, a worthy ambition and one I could certainly get behind. Um, I think I'd probably revisit the whole idea of co-production, making sure that people involve the end user at a far earlier stage in any plans they have for just about anything, really, not just transport. But I would also want operators, local authority and government departments to be involved and active doing these kinds of things. And I would really like Treasury to understand the importance of transport. So I think that's about nine different things that I'd quite like to change. But without Treasury support, nothing much gets done. And with transport being a devolved thing in three countries, four countries, I suppose, really, it's slightly different in Northern Ireland, without Treasury support, nothing's ever going to happen. So could you change the world for us, please? Yeah, it's over to you, Honey. I'm sure you can make these things happen. Oh, I wish I could. Thank you. If only we all had that power. But thank you so much. That was certainly an insightful discussion, Claire and Jenny. Sadly, that is all we have time for today. It's been absolutely brilliant hearing your valuable insights into the role that technology plays in passenger transport and just how it's evolving over time, as well as how it can also help just to make these services more accessible for the people in our communities. I'm sure that our listeners have gained really valuable insights from the perspectives that you both shared. So thank you once again for your engaging and enlightening conversation. Before we go, a quick note to our listeners. I hope that you all enjoyed today's episode. If you're keen to hear more about other key topics from within the transport industry, then please do make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss out on our future episodes, as we have plenty more exciting discussions in store for you. You can listen to every episode of our podcast, both past and present, on our website, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as any other platform that you usually listen on. On behalf of myself and both Claire and Jenny, thank you all for your time and for listening to us today. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.